Well, good evening, church. God bless you. What a joy to see you. What a joy to be in the house of God on Sunday night, Father's Day. Will you let me use you as a sounding board for a long overdue confession? I have no other way of doing it. I regret while pastoring the Center Point First Baptist Church many years ago that I was among the first in the state of Alabama as pastor to suggest that we counsel services on a Father's Day or a Mother's Day Sunday evening. I don't know what got into me. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm ashamed of it. I was not paying attention to the fact that from our church, strategic church in that day, that word got out all across the state. And I regret any preacher or any church member who heard what Don Graham did at Center Point that they might decide to do the same thing. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. Thank you. I love you guys. I honor you for not bending and bowing to that pressure that I bent and bowed to. And God has forgiven me, but I've never had the privilege nor the challenge to admit it publicly in the house of God and I need to do that tonight because the dog's barking. If I ever was a pastor again and nobody would have me, I would simply say to my people, we will have church Sunday night, Wednesday night at such and such hour if my wife and I are the only ones there, we will have church. Period. Nothing else. So thank God for you. I honor you. Thank God for the privilege of loving you and being a part of your worship. Please take care of your good pastor when he returns to this field early next week. Love on him and take care of him. You're doing that and pray for him. Will you take your Bible and turn with us, please, to the book of Romans chapter 5 Romans chapter 5 to try to preach one message anywhere from the book of Romans is an impossibility one solid year every Sunday I developed messages from the book of Romans chapter 1 through the very end of the book upon finishing I had only skimmed the surface and now I have an assignment to preach one message from the middle of this marvelous treatise known as the Roman Epistle. The Colossus of Christian writing. How, like a pygmy, I stand before it. I want you to look for the phrase much more in our reading of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Will you rise to your feet with me, please, in reverence to the reading of the Word of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God 
is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, circle it, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, circle it, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more, there it is, circle it again, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one, Jesus, to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses under justification. The contrasting of Adam and Jesus. For if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more. There it is. Circle. Much more. They which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of the judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, that's Adam and you and me, so by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, look at this. The law entered that the grace might, that the offense might abound. But where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. There it is. Circle it again. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might Christ Jesus reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We bow in reverence before this, the holy word of God, committed to its infallibility, its impeccability, its absolute perfection. It is the pure, undivided, undiluted word of Almighty God. And we are committed to believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So tonight, 
We listen to you, Father, from the pages of Holy Scripture. Speak, Lord, to our heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you be seated. The much more of God. Jot the verse down. Go home and read it before you go to bed. Don't need to turn now. In 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verse 9, is the quaint little story of King Amaziah, who was being attacked, similar to this morning's lesson, by a horde of enemies surrounding him. He felt inadequate to try to go to battle against them with the limited number of troops that he had at his disposal. So he decided to contract with neighboring nations, armies, to pay them to come and fight with them the battles against the people of God. He did that successfully and gathered unto him a multiplied army of several hundred thousand troops. And he had already in advance of the battle paid for the conscription price, paid these foreign soldiers money, paid employees of the government to fight their battle with them, had already given them the money. When the man of God confronts him unashamedly and reminds him of what he has done is in error and not the will of God. So he complains in response to the servant of God and says, well, what am I going to do? I've already paid these guys. Now I'm going to have to tell them to go back home? The Lord's answer to that question, verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 25, the Lord's, the, the servant of God said, the Lord is able to give thee much more than this. The Lord is able to give thee much more than this. I'd like to take that phrase out of that quaint little ancient story and say to you that God, your God, is able to give you much more. He's a much more God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. The God with whom we have to do is a much more God. And along the way when studying this marvelous epistle, that phrase leapt out to my attention from chapter 5. I began to study it throughout other portions of Scripture. And I've come up with this message, the much more of God. Will you follow me very carefully? In verse 9 and verse 10, we see first of all the much more of salvation. The much more of salvation. These two verses, two much more verses, both of them verse 9 and verse 10. They first, the first one, verse 9, argues from the greater to the lesser, while the second one in verse 10 argues from the lesser to the greater. Look at verse 9. Read it again. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Being justified by the blood of Christ, the power of red. Somebody say amen. amen. I didn't plan to preach your pastor's theme for the year. You just can't miss it anywhere in the Bible, can you? I like that, don't you? The power of red. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Being justified, the argument is, by the grace of God, every charge against us has been dealt with and we have been accounted as righteous in the sight of the righteous one. Therefore, we need not fear that we shall ever be overtaken by the wrath of God. 
The issue is settled. We have been forgiven. We have been released. We are accounted as righteous. We are clothed with his righteous garments. Therefore, there is no fear, no doubt that we will ever be encountered with the wrath of God. The wrath of God fell upon the Son of God. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And wrath has been dealt with and we have been delivered and there's no fear for the child of God of coming days of wrath. And in verse 10, look at it again. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here we are arguing. We are not only brought to God, but we are united to God, a living Savior, energizing our life. He comes to live within us. He comes to impart his life within us. And living within us, he energizes us for the glory of God. Therefore, therefore, we should not be worried about any other matter, for he will take care of everything else that needs to be done. Amen? Faithful is he who has promised who will also do it. He who hath begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. From time to time out in the world, I had the good pleasure of being confronted by a devout Christian who didn't know who I was and could care less and walked up to me, introduced himself and said, Sir, have you been saved? I like to meet folks that are bold enough to do that. And I enjoyed responding to people like that by saying, Oh, yes, sir, I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. Which tense are you talking about? And we have a good conversation from there on. I have been saved. One blessed, happy Lord's Day Sunday morning at the Union Baptist Church in Lipscomb, Alabama, an eight-year-old lad of a boy who didn't know much but knew all he needed to know in order to be saved, repented of his sin, cried out to God for mercy, and asked the Lord to save him. And he was born again of the Spirit of God. And Don Graham made his public profession of faith that Sunday morning in that good church and was baptized the following Sunday. That moment in my face before God, I was saved. I have been justified freely by the grace of God. I have been saved. An action in the past that is complete. But at that moment, a new life began. The Savior, the living Savior came to live within me and lives within me this day many years since. From an eight-year-old boy to a whatever I am tonight, I've forgotten. <laughs> brother, br br my, my, my brother over here made me want to forget how many of those years are. But every step of the way, I, how, I am being saved. You got me? I am being saved yesterday. I am being saved right this moment. I am being saved tomorrow. It's the great work of sanctification whereby God, the Holy Spirit, has come to live within my life and is working in me right now that blessed work of redemption, carrying me ultimately to the fruition of judgment where I shall be saved. I shall be saved that good to glorious day ever so near that is soon to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will split the eastern sky and God will tell Jesus, go get my church.
go get my church. And he'll come down into the air. And those who are dead in Christ will be raised first into his presence, given a new glorified immortal body and stand before the Lord. Those of us who may be alive at his return in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And at that moment, we shall be saved. Sanctification, glorification. That's going to be a grand day. So you want to talk about salvation? Let's talk about what the theologians call soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It's three tenses. It's past, it's present, it's future. I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. Thank God for that because there lives within me nothing other than the living Savior. And I will be saved by his life by what he's doing within me. He's alive. He's my creator. He lives within me. And alive within me, he is able to do whatever he pleases. I'll never have to worry about any of it. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? That's good news. The much more of salvation. Secondly, look at verse 17 and verse 20. I call the much more of supply. The much more of supply. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. The much more of supply. Supply comes by the abundance of grace. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, verse 11. Drop down to verse 20 now of chapter 5 of Romans. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. Thank God for that. If there was no other verse in the Bible, you and I ought to take off our shoes tonight because we're standing on holy ground. Sin abounds all around us. Sin abounds within us. We live in the flesh, yet in this world. Saved, yes. Being kept by the power of God, yes. Being sanctified on a daily basis through the indwelling Spirit of God, yes. And all along the way, every step of the way, every moment of the day, while sin abounds freely all around us, God's grace did much more abound. Don't you like that? I wish I could define it. I wish I could do it justice. I can't. I've given it my best shot. I hope you'll thank God for the grace that abounds in your life. The dominant thought in these verses is the excellent surpassing glory of the gospel. Whether in contrast to Adam, the first sinner, or to Moses, on whose face the glory of God did shine when he walked out of Sinai. Whether it be by our life is a sinner or a saint or a servant. There is abundant and sufficient supply of the grace of God. I want to show that to you deeper now here in the Word of God. I want you to notice God's abundant things. The much more God does everything abundantly, okay? Uh, you got that? Say, I got it, Brother Don. Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, we start there, and I'm staggered to hardly able go any further. Listen to this marvelous verse. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you that you always 
having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Able to supply every need that you have or will ever have for grace abounds. He says here boldly that God is the God of all grace and he calls that grace to abound to you in order that you may abound to every good work. Whatever he calls upon you to do, wherever he sends you, whatever he requires of you, he will appropriate and supply the grace needed for the journey. Thank God for that. He's able to supply. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Will you listen carefully to this? I've not said a word publicly about this. I don't believe. I know not in the pulpit. But I must tonight with you. God lets me get in on a few things along the way and says, son, that's what I'm talking about. He's able to supply. Do you ever come up to a need in your life where you wonder, how in the world is God going to meet this need? You ever been there? Have you been there so deeply perhaps where you thought, well, now this is beyond God. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but God's not even going to fool with this one. You ever been that low? Some of us have. Perhaps the greatest one-ticket item financially in anybody's household outside of their house is an automobile. For some reason, we Americans have built ourselves and painted ourselves into a corner thinking we got to have an automobile. It's an expensive item, and we think we got to have one. Well, preachers who are traveling preachers like me certainly need an automobile. I was in such a need not long ago. I was in a revival meeting in North Alabama. Stayed in a home that was adjacent to the house where members of the church lived where I was preaching. I didn't meet the man, the owner of the home. He was a, a businessman. I knew he was a successful businessman. That's all I knew. I never saw him because he worked so hard. He'd come to church just at the last minute and he'd leave as soon as church was over. He was there every service, but so involved. I never met him until the last day. The night of the last day of the meeting, I came to the end of that meeting, preached that last service. The man in whose home I stayed, his wife was church treasurer, and I knew that. After the service was over, before I made my way home, she came up to me and handed me an envelope, and I knew inside the envelope would be a couple of checks, most likely a, an expense check for the week of meetings and a love offering that they had been taking. I knew that. She handed it to me, I put it in my pocket, and walked away and didn't think any more about it. Well... I got about halfway home, and I thought about it, reached in my pocket, opened up the envelope, driving down the interstate, and there were three checks inside the autumn envelope. One check for my travel expense, another check for my honorarium, and a third check for $20,000 from that family to buy me a new automobile. You talk about a guy who almost had a wreck on the interstate. My God is able to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The problem is that miles mount up on those cars and right soon, sooner than you ever think, you're going to need to replace it. It's going to burn up on you or something. I was in just such a need. 
was invited back that Sunday to preach at the same church. I stopped by their house to visit with them. They've become great friends. Visited with them for a while, ate a, 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 a light supper, then went on to the church to preach. He followed me outside. It was summertime, and one of those summer thunder showers had come up, and it was raining. So he got his umbrella and walked me out to the car with the umbrella over me. <laughs> and as we walked around behind the car, he mumbled something. I didn't hear it all, but it sounded like, well, Brother Don, we can get rid of this thing anytime you want to. I didn't understand what he said. I didn't want to appear ungrateful, but neither did I want to appear presumptuous. I didn't know what to say, so I just didn't say anything. I just got in the car and drove away. Thought about it on the way home that night. The next day, I decided I'd better call him and apologize for acting like a thick head that I am. So I called him and thanked him for what he had meant to me. And I said, I want you to know I didn't understand what you said last night. And I don't hear real well. That's another one of my problems. I hear selectively, my wife tells me. But I don't hear well anymore. You women quit hitting your husbands. I called him. I said, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. I don't know what you said, and I don't know what I should have said, but I'm sorry I was so thick-headed. He said, oh, Don, what I was trying to say is we can trade that thing in on the new one anytime you want to. I said, say. <laughs> Within a month, I was riding in a brand-new automobile. Traded that one in on that one. Now, you're looking at a boy who doesn't know what to do with a new automobile. I promise you, I don't live in that kind of company. But it was fun going to the car dealer and telling them, give me your best deal. I'm going to pay cash. Don't bug me with time. Give me your best deal. I acted like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. You see what I'm saying? Whatever the need, God will fit grace to that need of yours. Whatever it is, because my God is able. Where grace, excuse me, where sin did abound, God's grace did much more abound. Abundant grace. Secondly, abundant life. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, I am come that they might have what? Life. And that they might have it what? More abundantly. Abundant life. When you're dead, to have life at all is enough, you would think. When you've been dead in your trespasses and in your sin, now you are alive, forgiven, cleansed, delivered. <laughs> to be alive is enough, you would think. But God goes much more beyond that to give you abundant life. Not only is there abundant grace and abundant life, but there's abundant hope. You folks just sang about it. Matthew, excuse me, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. The Bible reads, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in the power of the Holy Ghost. Abundant hope. We use the word hope rather carelessly in today's vernacular. We, we use it as a rather weak word. We say, sure hope it won't rain tomorrow. I want to plant my garden or wash my car or go to the ball game or whatever. Hope it won't rain. 
We use that word in that setting, and it's rather weak. You don't know whether it's going to rain or not. If you could have your rathers, you would much prefer that it not rain for whatever the reason, so you just hope it won't rain. We use the same word when a guy is getting ready to take an exam, and he's got to pass the exam to pass the course. And you ask him how he thinks he's going to do. And he says, I, I ho, 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 hope I'll, I'll do all right. You go down the pew or, or the row he's sitting, and you ask another student who's a straight-A student who's made an A on every previous exam, and you ask that student how does he think he's going to do on the exam, same exam. He says, well, I hope I'll pass. He'll pass. That's the second way. That second op op option is the way this word, hope, is used in the Bible. It is the attitude of absolute certainty. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace that we might abound in hope. Not just hope, but abounding hope. Much more, much more. Next is abundant love. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul said, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment. Abounding love. God wants your love to abound. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. The first of the ninefold cluster of fruit, Galatians 5, 22, 3, is the fruit of love. Many studying that great passage, and I'm among them, believe that that's at the head of the list because everything else flows out of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what thank do you have? Even the sinners, the heathen, do that. The real test of love is when you love those who don't love you, who love those who are different from you, who love those who for whatever reason make you feel uncomfortable in their presence. When you love those whose color of their skin is not just like yours. When you love those whose language they speak is not quite like yours. Loving those who are hard to love and that's a bunch of folk out there. Some of us are in those categories. Do you love just those who love you? God had a great lesson for me in my first trip to Africa, my first overseas mission. Little did I know what God had in store for me. I need you to hear this. I grew up in a home in Alabama. I'm an Alabamian like all of you, most of you. By birth, I'd be an Alabamian by choice. I'm an Alabamian, and I'm proud of it, all right? We got a lot of problems. But I'm grateful to be raised in the state of Alabama, okay? But because of that, I was led to the brutal assessment as a child that black people are to be hated. My daddy taught me to hate black people. When he found in my life that God was calling me to the mission field and realize the stark possibility that I may end up living among black people. He was quite upset. Had to battle that because I loved my dad. He was wrong about that. We had many conversations about it. I loved him through them all. He would never budge an inch. And I continued to see the truth of God and could not incorporate his mindset. My first trip to Africa was Tanzania. 
the church's center point, sent me and another preacher from South Georgia for three weeks meeting, three revival meetings and three consecutive churches for three weeks. A marvelous experience. My interpreter was a little black man. I can't remember his name. He stood about here. He's slender. He's a married man with about five children, sharp as a tack. He knows English better than I do. He certainly knows Swahili much better than I would ever think about. He's my interpreter. For three solid weeks, every sermon I preached, I couldn't even go to the bathroom without asking him, where is the bathroom? Point it out. I was at his mercy. He was my interpreter. He was a jewel. He made it so easy to preach with a translator, and that's a assignment in Swahili. Three weeks. At the end of the third week, I had fallen in love with him. And I asked the, van, the missionary if there was something I could do, a gift that I could give him uh, to remember our days together. And the missionary said, well, if you'll notice his shoes are worn out. He really needs a new pair of shoes. And, and the preachers here in Tanzania love to have a white shirt and tie to preach in. He could use a white shirt and tie. So I went out and bought him a pair of shoes, a white shirt and tie. And the last day we were together, I gave him that shirt and tie and those shoes. And as I gave them to him, I thanked him. And in that thank you, I said, I want to thank you for the biggest reason and the main reason is that God has used you to help me drive a final nail in the coffin of prejudice. Thank you, sir. I said, I say that to you because my daddy taught me to hate black men. And I've had a hard time getting over it. My interpreter broke down and began to cry. And through his tears and his muffled speech, he said, Brother Don, I need to thank you for the same reason. Because you see, my daddy taught me to hate white men. His daddy was enslaved in the diamond mines of South Africa, brutally treated by white men. And God helped both of us that day to see that God doesn't look on us as being black or white, yellow, red, pink, or purple, even though some of you will paint your hair that color now. <laughs> God loves everybody. And if he lives in you, he wants to love them through you. I think you folks begin to understand that. For 16 years now, I've given myself to go to minister to the black people of Haiti. I'm going back this October. You folks have been, will go back real soon again, and I honor you for it. Thank God for that. The grace of God, the abundant Supply God is able to give you abundant love. Not just loving those who love you, but abundant love, abounding to love those who aren't easy to love, who don't think like you think, who, who may not be an, a Republican or Democrat as you prefer being, or a Crimson Tider or Tiger as you prefer to be. You love them anyhow. Say amen, somebody. Notes next, number five, abundant glory in that your glory in Philippians 1.26, that your glory may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my presence with you again. Abundant glory. 
Paul said to the church at Galatia, God forbid that I should glory. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ Jesus, my Lord. We have nothing to brag about but the cross. We have nothing to talk about but the cross. As he arrived at the church to be in Corinth, he said, I come determined to know nothing, nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Abundant glory and glory in the cross. And you can abound in glory and boasting in the cross. Next, abundant work. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always, what's the next word? Abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Press on. Don't be weary in well-doing. God will cause your work for him, whatever it is, to abound yet more and more. Because he's a much more God. He's an abounding God. Now that may be poor English. May not make much sense, but makes a lot of sense theologically, doesn't it? And one last one. I could give you others. Abounding prayer answers. Prayer answers. Ephesians 3.20. Part of my favorite verse of Scripture and all of Scripture. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. He's able to do exceeding, abundantly, above. That's a much more God. Exceeding, abundantly, above, much more than we could ever ask in his answer to our prayers. I don't think I've told you. If I have, I'm going to tell you again. I looked my doctor in the face several years ago following a battery of tests and heard him say, hate to tell you, Mr. Graham, but you've got cancer. Nobody wants to hear those words. I've been with many of my church members along the way who heard those words for the first time and I was with them. It's tough. I promise you it's tough. The doctor gave me the option of immediate surgery, which he highly recommended, or medication, but he would highly recommend immediate surgery. I didn't know what to do, certainly didn't want to have surgery. Never had surgery before. I told him, let me study about it, pray over it. I did. I was quite concerned about that decision. It really began to eat on me and worry me a great deal. I prayed and I prayed. I tried to hide my anxiety from my family. Probably wasn't successful, but I gave it a shot. I was worried about it. I'd pray and I'd feel one way and I'd pray and I'd feel another way and up and down. That emotional roller coaster, some of you are familiar with it. I, I finally, one night, went to bed, went to sleep with all that on my mind, a fitful sleep. Somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning, God woke me up. And in my spirit, my heavenly Father said, Relax, son. Proceed with the surgery at the earliest possible hour. I'm going to take care of you.
surgery. Three days after the event, my doctor came in and said, Mr. Graham, we've got some good news for you. The cancer was contained within the gland that we successfully removed. There is no trace that it escaped the gland. You're going to be all right. I didn't have to have any radio treatment, any chemo, nothing. I walked out of the hospital 20 years ago. Amen. Amen. Now, listen. If the Lord had to call me home from that surgical table, I'd have had the better of the deal. Do you believe that? Absent from the body, what's the rest of it? Present with the Lord. Can you think of anything in better? That's the much more of God's promise. Well, I could go on. Let me hurry. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians chapter 2. The much more of sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Look at verse 12. Following that great pean of praise of the glorified Lord Jesus, the sevenfold step in his condescension and the sevenfold step of his exaltation. Then he says, wherefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hold it. Wait a minute, Paul. You're the guy who's been telling us that salvation is by grace through faith, nothing more, nothing less. And now you're telling me to work out my salvation? Yes, sir. Don't stop. Read the next verse. For it is God, verse 13, who worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You can't work out something that is not within you. Salvation is within you, vested within you by the power of a redeeming God. When you trusted him, turned to him, believed in him, repented of your sin, and were born again of the Spirit of God, you received salvation. Now work out the ramifications of what you have as a gift through the balance of your life. You can't work it out if you don't have it within. Amen? Amen. Yes, but how? Turn to 2 Peter verse chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Get a hold of this. The fruit of the spirits, Galatians 5, 22, 3. Set it beside these verses and read them carefully. Paul said, excuse me, Peter said, and beside this, given all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience Godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity, love, agape. Add to your life. Add these things. It's not a suggestion from God. It is a command that as we work out our salvation, we add these things to that cluster of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the work of the living Savior in your heart, and in your life, reproducing his character traits in you. For God saved you with the singular intention of conforming you to the image of God's dear son. Hallelujah, what a savior. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul said, And many of the brethren, 
in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are, look, much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's in prison. The word gets out across the Mediterranean world. Some of the lazy preachers are encouraged when they hear that Paul is a prisoner and likely won't get out of prison. So they can rush now to the forefront and assume the leadership role that Paul has left. And so they get more bold to preach the word of God because Paul is in prison. And that remarkable man rejoices over that. Look at it. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, and the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul understood the great axiom that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Did you hear that? That's why he's got folks like me in the ministry and you, because he can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And Paul rejoiced that these men were preaching irregardless of their motivation. The word was being preached, and God's going to honor the preached word of God. The much more of sanctification, the much more of service. Notice next, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Go back over there to 1 Peter. The much more of suffering, the much more of suffering. What a remarkable verse. 1 Peter, I need your, your uh, uh, patience tonight. I'm breaking in a new Bible. First time in my life I've preached from this new Bible. It's my third one since I started preaching. The other two have been covers placed, sewn together and re-sewn and re-sewn so many times that the book of Romans fell out of my Bible this last week. And I'm forced to preach tonight from a new version. Not a version, new version, but a new Bible. It's identical. One like was printed in 1907. But the pages stick together. I don't like to break new anythings in, do you? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Get it all in context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according unto his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, listen to it, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The much more of suffering. The ministry of suffering. When God orders that for a due season, the perplexities come, the adversity strike, the pain strikes, the job is lost, the money wanes, you lose respect, you lose face, you lose everything. The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold. Same words. God says that testing in your life, the trial of your faith, whatever produces it is much more precious. And not just precious. I mean, 
to call that adversity precious is a, a mouthful. To say it's more than precious is a big mouthful. To say it's much more precious is a huge mouthful. And that's God's understanding of his investment in you because of his deep love for you. He's not going to let you get by with it. He's going to bring chastisement into your life to school you and to discipline you. Just as the three Hebrew children were thrown into the fiery furnace, they lost their bonds, but they found the company of Jesus in the fiery furnace. The only thing burned were the bonds that bound them as a prisoner. God uses suffering like that, and he understands that's his purpose. And while we may not understand, and while we may complain, and while we may tell the Father, it is all so unfair. Be aware. Be aware. I talked to you this morning about things that are invisible. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4 with you. Chapter 4, verse 17. Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. While you go through that trial of your faith, look at the things that are not seen. One more, two more. Hebrews chapter 10, will you go over there? The much more of synthesis, the much more of synthesis. I hope you understand my word. I'm not just straining at gnats to swallow camels so I can make my alliteration complete. I'm talking about synthesis. You're familiar, some of you, with the Hegelian philosophy. You have the thesis and the antithesis, and the synthesis brings truth together from both. The synthesis, the much more of synthesis. Look at Hebrews 10, 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some as You know that verse, don't you? But exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see, the day approaching. The much more of synthesis. The gathering together of the people of God on the Lord's day, hearing this house of worship, and all across the land where the church of Jesus congregates for worship, wherever and whenever they gather together, Jesus has promised in advance where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be among them. And if you refuse to be a part of the gathering of the house of God and the people of God in your local assembly for worship. You bring disgrace upon yourself and you dishonor a holy God because you're saying, it does not matter to me that Jesus is going to be there. I'm not going to go. Do you understand that's how serious it is to absent yourself from the gathering together for worship of the people of God? Say amen. amen. Say oh me. Say something, would you? The much more, lastly, of severity. Hebrews 12. Turn over a couple of pages. Hebrews 12, 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. The last word is the much more of severity. The much more of severity. If you reject the one who speaks to you, he will reject you. Few pulpits of America want to enunciate that truth 
that is all through the pages of God, woven like a golden thread throughout every chapter of Scripture. Surely the Bible enunciates clearly outlining the love of God. Oh, where would we be without that understanding? However, simultaneous to that is the outlining of the wrath of God that awaits every man who refuses to bow and bend his knee before the Son of God and receive him as Savior of their life. Paul puts it this way. Later in his epistle, chapter 11, verse 22. Behold the goodness and severity of God, the much more of severity. If he offers the free gift to all men and you refuse the gift, be prepared for the much more of God's severity and throughout the endless ages of eternity, rolling through the corridors of hell itself, you'll remember you said no, and you're receiving exactly what you deserve from the hands of a God of love and a God of severity. What a word. Thank God. I'm going to ask our singers to come and prepare to sing for us our invitation. I want you to sing along with them. I trust the words will be on the screen. Just sing. Sing out loud. Sing. Sing unto the Lord. I wonder tonight if there's anybody here who just needs to talk to God. I think I can do nothing better anywhere than to invite people to pray. You gather by now that I believe in the old-fashioned altar. You do too. Your pastor surely does. I believe in the old-fashioned altar. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe something happens when the people of God together in unison gather at the place of prayer, bend their unworthy knees in that altar and cry out to God and pray. So I invite you to do that tonight. The God that we love and serve is a much more God. Much more, much more. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Will you rise to your feet? Let me pray with you. And I invite you to come to this altar. There'll be men here to help you should you need their help. But you come and pray. Cry out to God. Whatever he's spoken to you about. Is the dog barking still today? Have you obeyed him? Father, we love you. We thank you, Father, for your great grace. Thank you for the privilege of worship. Thank you for your forgiving grace. Thank you for the much more of God. Lord, I pray that We'll ever remember that's the kind of God you are. You don't do anything miserly or meagerly. It's always supra-abundant, always superfluous, always far exceeding abundantly beyond our thinking or our duty. Thank you for being that kind of God before whom we bow now in reverence, thanking you in Jesus' name, amen. Sing for us, guys. Will you come to this altar, my friend? Will you come? Even now, let's pray together. Will you do it?